Hello, this is Jimmy LaSalle, and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. Today, we will be continuing the conversation that we started last time on some of the social reform movements that took root in the early 1800s, mid-1800s, mid-1800s. So we're going to continue on with the abolitionist movement as well as women's suffrage. And with us, as always, is our resident history buff, Gene Anzanakis. Jeannie, take it away. So continuing on with these series of reform movements, for the women's suffrage movement, having the right to vote was critical if women were going to be able to secure other rights within American society. Women did not have access to the same education as men, the same jobs as men. The most prestigious schools in the United States only admitted men. When women were employed in the few occupations that were deemed appropriate, such as teaching, for example, they were paid less than their male counterparts. For unmarried women, they were able to own property, enter into legal contracts, sue and be sued. Once a woman married, she lost those rights. When women married, they promised to obey. Her husband became a master of sorts. Susan B. Anthony never married as a result of that fact. Under the eyes of the law, women belonged to their husbands. Their property, inheritance, wages went to their husbands. In 1848, New York passed the Married Women's Property Act. This law allowed a woman to own and control their property. Other states used this law to pass similar ones. For women, their rights were, f- were few. If their husband gambled away his earnings, she had little recourse. If he was violent and abusive, she had little recourse. In the eyes of the law, she was the equivalent to a child. Even in cases of divorce, which were not common, men tended to be given the children. Only very young children and maybe daughters were given custody to the women in cases of divorce. In 1840, Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton attempted to attend the World Anti-Slavery Convention in London. They were banned from participating because they were women. It's important to note that many people who were abolitionists supported women's suffrage and many suffragists were also abolitionists. This alliance would continue until the debate over the wording and ultimately the passage of the 15th Amendment. In 1870, many women suffragists argued that the word gender needed to be added to the amendment, and when that was refused, Many abolitionists felt betrayed by their female counterparts and the women's movement felt betrayed by their abolitionist supporters. 
Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton would go on to host a women's right convention, which eventually became known as the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848, after meeting again um, at a tea party, of all things. The Seneca Falls Convention was held in upstate New York over a period of two days. The first day, only women were allowed to attend, and on the second day, the meeting was opened to men as well. This event is known as the beginning of the women's suffrage movement. At the Seneca Falls Convention, the Declaration of Sentiments, which was read and signed by both male and female attendees, um, it was written by Elizabeth Cady Stanton. The Declaration of Sentiments was modeled after the Declaration of Independence, declaring that both men and women were equal. The document, uh, it highlighted the areas within society where women were held as second-class citizens and were unequal to men, access to education, equal protection under the law, the right to enter into legal contracts, property ownership, and of course, the right to vote. They argued that the only time women were recognized by the government was in terms of taxes. So, you know, only when it was time to pay up. Today in Seneca Falls, there is this wonderful museum. You can see the chapel where 300 people attended the convention. Elizabeth Cady Stanton's house where she raised her seven children. And the home of Mary McClintock where the Declaration of Sentiments was actually written. During the Civil War years, the movement for women's suffrage and temperance were put on hold. Women focused on the war effort. In the years following the Civil War and slavery was abolished and the 15th Amendment stipulated that the right to vote could not be denied or abridged based on race or previous condition of servitude, the fight to extend the right to vote to women continued. There were some states and territories that allowed women the right to vote. New Jersey, for example, gave women the right to vote until 1807 when they took it away. In 1869, Wyoming became the first state to give women the right to vote. Many Western states and territories granted women full citizenship and the right to vote if they were over the age of 21. Jeanette Rankin was the first woman elected to the United States House of Representatives in Montana. Martha Hughes Cannon was the first woman elected to be a state senator. She was from Utah. Um, she was a doctor with degrees in both chemistry and pharmacy. She was also the fourth wife of a Mormon polygamist and had to step down after she gave birth to her third child. The United States government at that time used the birth of a child to prove polygamous unions, which they were trying to put an end to. Susan B. Anthony is probably the most famous of the leaders of the women's suffrage movement. She came from a family of activists. She was raised as a Quaker and guided by the belief that all people are equal in the eyes of God. She was also a supporter of the abolitionist and temperance movements. She met Elizabeth Cady Stanton in 1851, and they formed a lifelong bond. They often traveled around the country and gave speeches in support of suffrage. 
1872, she was famously arrested and fined $100 for voting illegally. Today, many women in particular will go to her gravesite on election day and place their I voted stickers on her grave. Elizabeth Cady Stanton doesn't get the same praise as Susan B. Anthony, but she should. She came from a wealthy family and, like Anthony, also supported abolition. After her marriage, she moved to Seneca Falls and had seven children. She would write the speeches, and Susan B. Anthony, who was unmarried and had no children of her own, was more able to travel around the country and gave those speeches that she wrote. She helped to author two books. One was A History of the Suffrage Movement, and the other one was called The Woman's Bible, which discussed the way women were portrayed throughout the Bible, and that way created a bias. Elizabeth Cady Stanton was seen as too radical as a result of that book, in addition to her work in support of you know, reproductive rights for women. Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton could not have led more different lives. Stanton's role as a wife and mother limited her ability to do as much as Susan B. Anthony, but I would go as far to say that without Elizabeth Cady Stanton, you don't have the same Susan B. Anthony. Lucretia Mott, who helped to organize the Seneca Falls Convention with Elizabeth Cady Stanton, was also a married woman and a mother of six children. She was a member of William Lloyd Garrison's Anti-Slavery Society and helped to found the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society. I mentioned earlier that her and Elizabeth Cady Stanton's inability to participate at the convention in London led them to organize the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848 after another chance meeting at a tea party. She worked to further the movement for women's equality, and her speech titled A Discourse on Women was published and widely read. In it, she made the case for granting political rights for women and how current conditions for married women and a lack of access to higher education led women to be considered inferior. It's important to note that not all women suffragists were white women. Many women of color were leaders within the movement and as a result of their race were unable to vote in 1920 as white women were after the passage of the 19th Amendment. There were so many women of color, and I hate to only highlight a few, but for time constraints, I will talk of one known leader and two lesser known. Sojourner Truth was a former slave whose freedom was purchased by an abolitionist family. She was also a wife and mother and had a number of her children sold as slaves to other people. An abolitionist and a supporter of women's suffrage, she was influenced by the fiery preachers of the Second Great Awakening. She too became a preacher and changed her name from Isabella to Sojourner Truth. Not a lot of people know that. In 1851, she spoke at a women's suffrage conference in Akron, Ohio. Her Ain't I a Woman speech attacked the notion that women were a weaker sex. 
you have to imagine, you know, the image of this woman who was almost six feet tall, giving this beautiful impassioned speech, detailing the hard labor she was forced to do and the violent punishments she suffered during her years as a slave. If you have not read the full speech, please do so. It's so beautiful. Just, you know, to read a little bit from it, and this is a direct quote from Sojourner Truth's Ain't I a Woman speech. She says, that man over there says that women need to be helped into carriages and lifted over ditches and to have the best place everywhere. Nobody ever helps me into carriages or over mud puddles or gives me any best place. She bore 13 children and had seen most sold into slavery. And when she cried out in her mother's grief, none but Jesus heard her. At the end of the speech, she thanks the audience for listening and ends with, and old sojourner ain't got nothing more to say. I mean, if that's not a drop the mic moment, I don't know what is. Another woman, Fanny Barrier Williams, is lesser known than she should be. She was from Rochester, New York, and the first African-American woman to earn a degree at the state normal school. She became a teacher and worked in the South during the post-Civil War or Reconstruction era. She saw firsthand the horrific way black Americans were treated in the Southern United States. She helped to create the National Association for Colored Women, and helped W.E.B. Du Bois establish the NAACP. Her belief in advancing educational opportunities for women of color helped countless women. In 1869, the National Women's Suffrage Association was created by a number of people, Lucy Stone, Henry Blackwell, Mary Livermore, just, you know, to name a a few. The NWSA was more radical and created by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Elizabeth uh, and um, Susan B. Anthony. I mean, the NWSA, they encouraged women to attempt to vote. And when they were arrested, use the court system and that will bring about change. Each of these groups was working to gain the right to vote But in 1890, these groups merged and they became known as the National American Women's Suffrage Association, otherwise known as NAWSA, NASA. Susan B. Anthony was the first president and then uh, Carrie Chapman Catt went on to lead it. The Progressive Era and World War I would both embolden the arguments for women to gain the right to vote. By 1912 and 1913, we start to see suffrage parades. And in 1917, the National Women's Party was established by a woman by the name of Alice Paul. Carrie Chapman Catt's focus on securing the right to vote in New York finally paid off in 1917. They began protesting in front of the White House. The silent sentinels, as they were called, stood in front of the White House holding banners quoting President Woodrow Wilson or asking him how long American women would have to wait for liberty. Many thought that while men were fighting oppression in Europe, it was unpatriotic for these women to protest in front of the White House. 
Unlike during the Civil War, women did not, women did not stop their fight for equality and for the right to vote. There was no moratorium. The fight continued. Many of the silent sentinels, including Alice Paul, were continuously arrested. Their peaceful protests in front of the White House were often met with violence. Knowing the likelihood of arrest and violence did not deter women from showing up to protest the next day. A wonderful film to show on this is Iron Jawed Angels. It does a wonderful job of showing the tireless dedication and even the hunger strikes that many went on while in prison for trying to gain the right to vote. Another favorite source of mine is the book called Jailed for Freedom by suffragist Doris Stevens, who wrote a firsthand account of what she went through to secure liberty for women. The 19th Amendment was approved by the final state needed in August of 1920 by one vote. So when you think your vote doesn't count, here's a great example that it does. Representative Harry T. Burns, who changed his vote after seeing a telegram from his mother. So there's that. Women gained the hard-won right to vote with the passage of the 19th Amendment, but not all women would immediately benefit from it. For Asian women, for example, the Chinese Exclusion Act banned Chinese women from voting until it was repealed in 1943. Jim Crow laws would limit women of color for being able to exercise their right to vote in many states until the mid-1960s. Women getting the right to vote was an important stepping stone to equality, that many of the activists we discussed unfortunately did not live to see. So much was needed to be done. Access to education, employment in a variety of fields would take decades and generations more. Up to as recently as 1970, women needed to have their husband's signature in order to be able to get a credit card. That's not so long ago. Women are still paid less in some industries as their male counterparts, and it's important to note that white women are often paid more than women of color for the same job. The movement for women's equality is still very much alive and well. The last movement we're going to discuss today is the abolition movement. Now, in terms of some content and information, we're going to go more in depth on some of the individuals and topics on future podcasts on causes of the Civil War and the Civil War and Reconstruction era. That will be coming out in a few weeks. The calls to end the institution of slavery began very early on. When people think of slavery in the United States, they tend to think of it as something that happened in the southern states. Now, while southern states developed a society fully dependent on the institution of slavery, it's important to understand that slavery existed in the north and in western territories as well. While states like Vermont and Massachusetts were the first states to ban slavery, there was no immediate emancipation. States would free, for example, children born after a certain date. Many states kept those children as apprentices, working for free up to a certain age. When Pennsylvania served as our country's second capital, 
it had banned slavery, but President George Washington argued that he could bring his slaves with him because technically he was a resident of Virginia where it was legal. It's important to understand just how much slavery was present throughout our country. Even after northern states worked to gradually bring an end to it by the early 1800s, the northern states still continued to benefit from the institution of slavery. With many northern states trading ports acting as a hub of the international slave trade before it was banned, eventually you have the rise of northern factories where those raw materials coming from the south to keep those textile mills up and running, where were they coming from? They were coming from southern plantations. So while many in the north sought to end slavery, they were very much intertwined with the institution themselves. The formal abolition movement in the United States began around the 1830s. An abolitionist was an individual who sought to bring an end to slavery. The movement was inspired by, you know, the religious revivals of the Second Great Awakening that we talked about in the first half of this podcast. Abolitionists looked at slavery through both a moral and religious lens. Slaves were not considered people. They were considered property, things to be purchased and sold, things to be treated any way their master wished. In the South, where slavery was most common, it's important to have a general understanding of who lived in the South. When some talk of the South, they think it was two groups, wealthy white plantation owners and slaves. That's not the full picture. For white Southerners, yes, you have your wealthy planter class, which were those who earned, who owned 20 or more slaves. They had those lavish homes and acted as nobility of Europe did. Within this class was also where the political power of Southern society rested. The majority of white Southerners were either small farmers or landless tenant farmers. Small farmers had a handful of slaves and tended to work alongside of them. Now, don't take this to mean that the slaves in this category had better treatment or lived lives that were less harsh. They typically didn't. At the bottom of white Southern society, you had poor whites who worked as tenant farmers. For the Southern black community, you have slaves and you have freed blacks. Freed blacks could have won their independence in the American Revolution, been descendants of those who had won their freedom in the Revolution and thus were always free, or those who had purchased their freedom or were granted freedom upon the death of their owners. If a slave had run away to the north or west and been freed, they didn't return to the south. There was typically a bounty on your head and your owner wanted you back. Abolitionists worked to bring awareness to the evils of slavery to write stories and show pictures of the treatment and conditions of the people forced to be slaves. There were many famous abolitionists, uh, each making their mark and helping to pave the way for freedom. 
one thing that's important to talk about is slave resistance and revolts. There were slowdowns. You had runaways and slave revolts, which were the ultimate forms of resistance to slavery. You had slave codes, which were passed, which limited the ability and opportunities for the enslaved to plan revolts and combine the acts of resistance. These laws were designed to prevent runaways and rebellions. You know, for example, it was illegal for people who were enslaved to read and write, uh, to be out after dark. They could not assemble in groups or own weapons. While it was illegal to learn how to read and write, many were taught by their owners. Yet, even with these restrictions, you do see rebellions and slave revolts. Some of the most famous, you know, Denmark Vesey was a freed black and planned a slave revolt in Charleston, South Carolina in 1822. His plan was, you know, to seize weapons from the town arsenal and horses and liberate as many slaves in the area and then sail off to Haiti. The plot was uncovered and you know, Vesey, along with dozens of others, were arrested and executed for their involvement in the plot. Another famous uh, one was Nat Turner's revolt in Virginia in 1831. He, along with four other enslaved men, killed their owners and moved from plantation to plantation, attempting to free others who were enslaved. And they ended up killing more than 50 Southern whites. Turner was captured and hanged. That particular event terrified slave owners, and it led to even more restrictive rules. You have John Brown, who in 1859 was a white abolitionist and attempted to seize a federal weapons arsenal in Harper's Ferry, Virginia. His goal was to arm local slaves, which would then lead to a a rebellion and end slavery. He was captured and his plot was unsuccessful. We'll talk more about John Brown and Harper's Ferry in our podcast on the causes of the Civil War. William Lloyd Garrison is probably one of the most famous abolitionists. He began his weekly newspaper called The Liberator in 1831 and continued on with it through the Civil War. He was considered radical for his belief and support in immediate emancipation. For 35 years, week after week, the stories and images he printed helped to spread awareness of the evils of slavery and promote the abolitionist movement throughout the North. In 1833, Garrison helped to establish what becomes known as the American Anti-Slavery Society, Garrison and the members of this society quickly drew up its manifesto, which declared its goal of working to bring about immediate emancipation, the belief that no one had the right to enslave another or deny education. Slave owners were undeserving of compensation for freeing their slaves and that the issue of slavery could not be left up to individual states. It was the federal government that should have the right to abolish slavery. The American Anti-Slavery Society had many notable members, just to name you a few, Susan B. Anthony, Lucretia Mott, uh, Frederick Douglass, Lucy Stone. Frederick Douglass... Um, was born into slavery and spent 20 years 
as a slave before finally being able to run away to freedom. He moved to Massachusetts after he was married, and it was while attending local abolitionist meetings there, he met William Lloyd Garrison. He was often a guest speaker at meetings detailing his life and often gave firsthand accounts of the evils of slavery. He then wrote his first autobiography called Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave. He went on to travel throughout Europe giving speeches where his audience was so moved by his story, they wrote to his former owner and purchased his freedom. So he was no longer, uh, you know, a runaway slave. Gilda Lerman has great resources on this. You can get transcripts of many of the letters that led to his freedom. It's a great spot to go. After that, you know, Frederick Douglass, no longer a fugitive slave, but a free man in the eyes of the law. Like Garrison, Douglas published an abolitionist newsletter. His was known as the North Star. He would go on to write more books. He became an advisor to President Lincoln. Uh, he was made an ambassador to Haiti. He was appointed marshal of the District of Columbia during the presidency of Rutherford B. Hayes. Sojourner Truth, who we talked about earlier during the women's suffrage movement discussion, like Frederick Douglass, was born into slavery and was owned by a slaveholding family in New York. She was owned by a number of different families and eventually ran away and found refuge with a family who were abolitionists and purchased her freedom. She was a supporter of abolition and feminism until her death. Her speeches detailing her experiences as a slave helped to further the abolitionist movement. And of course, we have to talk about Harriet Tubman. She too was born into slavery and was able to run away to the north by using the Underground Railroad. She became one of the most famous conductors on the Underground Railroad, putting her life and freedom at risk numerous times. And she helped countless people escape the constraints of slavery. She became known as Moses for all of the people she saved. Tubman, whose body was scarred from the brutal whippings she received as a slave, was an abolitionist and also supported the women's suffrage movement. The Underground Railroad was made up of abolitionists and safe houses that helped to bring people to the northern United States and Canada to freedom. Conductors would be at various stops to guide the passenger onto the next stop or hide them until it was safe to continue on the journey. Oftentimes, the Ohio River often served as that first glimpse of freedom. Once in the northern states, runaway slaves could then be more easily helped by abolitionists. Runaways traveled at night and risked being caught, beaten, killed. In 1850, when the Fugitive Slave Act was passed, simply getting to northern states no longer offered the same guarantee of freedom. And for many people, they had to continue on north to Canada, where the British government had already abolished slavery. The National Underground Railroad Freedom Center has great resources. I highly recommend it, uh, you know, going to freedomcenter.org and taking a look at them. They have great resources in teaching connections to today, 
with resources on implicit bias and modern day slavery. Unlike the other movements we discussed in this two-part episode, the abolition movement alone would not bring about freedom. It would take the Civil War to do that. With the Emancipation Proclamation, which went into effect on January 1st, 1863, the Civil War became not just, you know, a political war to preserve the Union, but also a moral war, a war to end slavery. With the passage of what become known as the Civil War Amendments, the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, the 14th Amendment, which granted citizenship, and the 15th Amendment, which stipulated that the right to vote could not be denied or abridged on the basis of race or previous condition of servitude, the goals of the abolitionist movement were finally realized. Slavery was abolished, but the road to true freedom and equality was still one laden with obstacle after obstacle. The civil rights movement would bring an end to Jim Crow laws and segregation that became the status quo after the Civil War ended. Even today, the fight for equality and and inclusiveness still continues. If you talk about slavery and, you know, if it exists today, it does still exist today. Slavery still exists around the world. You know, people, especially women and young girls, are often trafficked and forced into things like prostitution. In the United States alone, thousands of young children are at risk for being sexually exploited. In countries around the world, people are sold and forced to do hard labor. Just taking a look at race relations currently in the United States, it's a known fact that schools throughout the United States are still not fully integrated. You have neighborhoods that are predominantly white, and then you have neighborhoods that are predominantly filled with minority groups. You have a huge difference to how people with black and brown skin are treated when protesting than when white people are protesting. You have the Black Lives Matter movement looking to bring awareness to the inequality that exists within American society and the work that is being done and still needs to be done to bring an end to systemic racism and allow for true equality. Many of these movements that are still alive and well today can all trace back their roots to these original movements. Think of how much society could be improved if we all took it as our responsibility to end injustices that exist within our own communities and no longer look at them as someone else's job to fix, but instead our own responsibility to improve. Ufa, that was a lot of information there over the course of these, these social topics. That's why you had to break it up into two. So thanks for tuning in, and we will see you soon. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parler. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.